Hi there, Saber Talk listeners. Thank you once again for tuning into another episode of the Saber Talk podcast. I'm Mark Geis, and I'll be your host. Um, so I'm talking. I'm talking today about the Sabers' 6-3 loss to the Rangers on Monday and the 3-2 loss to the Ottawa Senators on Tuesday. I'm sorry, I'm condensing two different games into one podcast, but they're back-to-back nights. It's traveling for work. Um, I did get to watch both games, so I can give a quality analysis, but I just uh, wasn't able to take the time to put together a podcast following the Rangers game. So I'll be talking about both. Um, probably the biggest story coming out of these two games was just how how great Eichel was, and that's the only positive storyline, the only real thing I think that I'm going into the going into the All Star break thinking about is how great he's been. So he had four points in the two games. He had two assists on both of Zemgus Gergensen's goals uh, during the Rangers game. And then he scored two of the Sabres' three goals in the Ottawa game. Uh, he's really coming into his own, own as a star. And he's already at 16 goals. He's been playing at about a point-per-game pace recently. And... I mean, probably most importantly in terms of if you care about awards and if awards mean something looking toward the future, he's making a real push for the Calder. That doesn't really mean that much to me. I think the Calder is a really difficult trophy to to put too much stock into because so much of it depends on when a player comes into the league. And you're seeing with Panarin and Chicago, he, he has the advantage of coming in in his mid-20s, coming into the league. And yes, he's a very good player, and he's been one of the best rookies, if not the best rookie, but at the same time, he's six years ahead of Jack Eichel, and obviously those players are going to be more physically mature, and it's not necessarily fair to make a comparison. And so that's why you see a lot of guys win the Calder and not really ever end up being anything. But if you can win in your first post-draft season, if you can win the Calder Trophy in that first post-draft season it is a very likely sign of being a future star. And we've seen all the signs of that Eichel will be a future star, that he looks like he's going to be a 30 or 40 goal scorer. He already has 16 on this offensively starved team, playing with a lot of different line mates, a lot of line mates that have dragged his line down. So that would be big in your in that first post-draft season to win the Calder. Though, if he doesn't win it, I'm not going to be heartbroken. I just, I think it's kind of a weird trophy because of all the different times now with guys coming over from Europe and Russia that they can come over and be five, six, seven years ahead of somebody else in terms of physical maturity and development, yet win this award and be heaped with all this praise when is it really the same are they really a rookie when they've been playing professionally for eight years before coming over here um in terms of his place on the sabers he do, he really seems to have developed some chemistry with zemgus and the great thing about zemgus is that he can keep up with him and he brings a lot of the little things next to eichel so he He's really advanced quite a bit this year, I think, in his understanding of the defensive game. He He's tenacious, obviously. He's always going to work hard, and he sets a good example. Not that I think Eichel needs an example to be set for him, but 
I think, to have next to a, a player with all the star attributes like Eichel has, that, that big confidence, he shows up when it matters the most, all of those types of things. Obviously, the huge talent to have a guy like Gergensen's next to him that can that can just bring all the they can complement him in all those little ways. I think those two could be a long-term pair in this lineup. Gergensen's also came back, and I think not coincidentally came he came back from injury in that Rangers game, and not coincidentally Eichel really exploded over the last two games. So I think it's important, especially looking at the other wingers that are on this team, for Gergensen's to be healthy. So if Gergensen isn't in the lineup, look at who Eichel has to play with, and it's not very pretty, especially when you still have Tyler Ennis out and when Jimmy McGinn was banged up. It's it's not a really inspiring cast of characters when there are a few injuries to the wingers on this team. So Zembis coming back was huge. It would be great if those two can be a long-term pair, and I'd really I'm really excited to see what they do together down the stretch, and if Gergensen's can continue to emerge offensively after not really doing anything in that sense through most of the year so far. Now, as kind of something negative, Ryan O'Reilly really does look like he's worn down from playing so many minutes, which is understandable. There, there are very few guys in this league, I think, that can play those kind of minutes consistently over a full 82-game schedule, and... Yes, O'Reilly has been leaned on a ton in the past with Colorado, and you could argue that the Western Conference is a more physical and grinding, has a more physical and grinding style of play, and it's tougher to play tons of minutes. And especially if you look maybe a couple years ago, I think it's starting to even out a lot more now. But the way that he's been leaned on this year is unlike anything he's had so far in his career. And you, you may not even be able to see that in terms of minutes, but just in terms of He's depended on to be this team's go-to defensive forward and this team's go-to offensive forward. Eichel really has stepped up after, you know, going through some maybe some rough stretches, which you would expect out of a out of a guy in his first post-draft season. But Eichel every night really has to produce on both ends of the ice for this team to win. And not that not that he didn't have a lot of pressure on him when he was in Colorado. He was obviously extremely important to that team, but. He came here and he has been the guy. And if the guy doesn't produce on one given night, his team probably isn't going to win. And that's the kind of pressure he's had on him all year. So he's still giving a great effort, but just isn't making the same impact that he did earlier in the year. And I think part of it could be explained by line mate deterioration. I talked about this with Eichel, how... The, the winger depth in this team is terrible. The center depth is pretty good. You've got Two very good centers, obviously, in O'Reilly and Eichel. And now Larson has stepped up and played pretty well in the third line. And I like what Schaller's done in his call-up. And you've also got leg one on the roster that can fill in as that fourth-line center. So the center depth isn't really an issue. And thankfully, all of those guys have stayed healthy. But the winger depth just is not very good. And obviously, that's why that's one of the weaknesses of this team. But they've also faced several injuries, so it's made it that much more apparent. And I think... O'Reilly has suffered from that. Really, earlier in the season, no matter who his linemates were, he was making a huge impact game in and game out. So that's why I that's why I first talked about that I think he's worn down because I think now he he's almost not at a point where he can 
compensate for that necessarily or compensate for it to the same level that he was doing earlier in the year. So hopefully with Eichel's emergence, that can take some of the pressure off of him. Now that this this third line has really emerged and Larson looks like somebody that Bilesma can lean on, hopefully O'Reilly doesn't have to play the kind of minutes he has up to this point all year long. He's still going to play a ton of minutes, obviously, but maybe not quite to the to the extent that it's been so far. Um, so I touched on this, that Larson and Felino really do look rejuvenated playing with each other. So they've become two parts of a very good defensive line, and I, I can't say I'm surprised by what Larson's done. I think looking at what he did last year, and he was able to step up into that number one center role down the stretch and form a, a pretty good line. Uh, on that terrible offensive team last year. But Marcus Foligno, and I've talked about him in a lot of these podcasts, and earlier in the year I was pretty ready to give up on him. He just didn't look like he was bringing much at all. He, You look at him one game, you, you see he's got some skill, he's big, he, he's in a bad skater, he hits people when he's really in that mindset, and... Be, Earlier this year and last year, you only really saw that emerging. He was playing next to Nick Delorier. And you wondered, is Delorier the catalyst that you need for Felino to wake up? But the problem is that Felino isn't really playing up to his potential if he's just on a fourth line next to Delorier. Because though I like Delorier a lot, he's just going to be a fourth line forward. He's just, he's just a banger. He's a guy you send out there for his eight minutes a night and hit some people. And you know maybe he can score a goal here and there, but Felino is more talented than that. So you always hoped he could at least be this top nine winger. And I think next to Larson, Larson's become the catalyst that Delorier was for him earlier this year. I think it looks like to me at least that Felino's feeding off Larson's skating and how he's just always in people's not in people's faces, but he's always disrupting the play and. Um, I think Felino feeds off that. Maybe he always is going to need that. He's going to need somebody else that can really get him going. But he's had a pretty good long stretch here now where I've been impressed. And this has been one of the longest stretches like that in his career because he's had a lot of good short bursts followed by very long periods of invisibility. So I'm optimistic with him. And if they can keep that larsen Felino pairing together, I do like Gianta next to them on the right wing too. Uh that would be incredible if you can come out of the season with at least two-thirds of a, of a solid long-term third line in place. And I know Gianta probably isn't in the long-term plans. He really can't be because of his age. But that would be incredible. So I've been pretty impressed with them. Um, the fourth line, not making a ton of impact. At least didn't make a ton of impact over these couple games. I think the injuries have really hurt. I Schaller and Legwand I, I do like together and Schaller may actually have a spot on this team next year. I could see him maybe being the 13th or 14th forward depending on how many forwards they keep. Um, he's skated hard just he's just been more noticeable. And obviously as a fourth line, you don't need a player to be a stalwart defensively. You don't you don't need him to 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 score many goals. You just want somebody that's going to go out there and put in their honest eight to ten minutes 
and not get hemmed into their own zone. And I think Schaller and Legwand together do a good job of that. But I think with the forward injuries, their line mate, their line mate has been changing. And when it's Matt Molson, I don't think he, he doesn't fit on that type of line. Um, Molson now has been playing further up the line, the lineup. So it's been an, it's been an other cast of characters and, I think they suffer by that player not being NHL caliber. So as the forwards get more healthy, I hope that the fourth line can look better. I wasn't very impressed with them over the last couple games, though. They really weren't making much of an impact, and Biles must seem to go away from them late in games, which I understand, obviously, in the Rangers game. When you when you need goals, Schaller and Legwen aren't going to be out there very much. But um, they he, he went away from them in the Ottawa game as well. So I think it's it's emblematic that they're not bringing what they were before because I think they were leaned on more before. Um, related to that, Cal O'Reilly's kind of in that category with Schaller and the call-ups and the fringe guys, but he really hasn't brought much to the table. And I think he he's going to be the next one to go down. Veroni already went down. I They've tried to get O'Reilly involved, but he doesn't fit on a fourth line like that, and he's just he doesn't bring he also doesn't bring enough to the table, I think, to be in an NHL top nine. So I think he will be the next one to go back down, assuming they get healthier coming out of the coming out of the break here. And like I said before, Delorier really is important to that fourth line. I think if you can get a fourth line of Delorier, Schaller, Legwand you'll start to see good things from them. You'll start to see them bring their honest 8 to 10 minutes and Biles been leaning on them a bit more. Um, another kind of negative takeaway from these couple games is that Jake McCabe has really struggled. So I know I had I had proposed or I, I had been a proponent of keeping McCabe up here and hopefully playing him with Pesek at least keeping him in the lineup up here because this is a developmental year and you want you want your future pieces if assuming that you have them in the organization to be playing with the with the big club if they can assuming that it's not a toxic environment and though this team isn't good it's not a toxic environment so i had advocated for McCabe to stay up but i do think now he's really struggled the last couple of games and he hasn't looked good playing next to Cody Franson so when Georges comes back from injury, I think that McCabe will be going back to Rochester. Maybe not for the rest of the year, especially if and when moves are made. You very well could see Mike Weber getting shipped out for a pick to a contender. Um, you maybe could see a Georges move, even though I do think it's going to be hard to get a contender to take on the rest of his contract. But I think at least for the time being, he'll be sent back and allow to be under maybe a little bit less pressure and to try to get his head underneath him and be able to come up later once some of those moves are made and they need bodies back here to prove his long-term worth. But I think his performance over this last stretch has has turned my thinking on him. Molson I mentioned before, and he continues to be invisible, trying to get him going next to Eichel, but I, I don't think that that's a long-term fit as, as much as I would love it to be. I think with Eichel, you need guys that can skate and Ger- that's why Gergensen's makes sense there. He, he is a good skater. And like I talked about before, he, he brings a lot of those little things. Molson. Yes. He has good hands around the net and 
maybe he can pot some some chances from great Eichel passes, but with Eichel being able to push the tempo and all of that, you need somebody with hands that also can keep up with can also keep up with Eichel. And Gergensen, as you saw, Eichel setting Gergensen up for a couple goals because of that, because they were able to keep up with each other. But Molson, when he was out there with them, he wasn't really a part of those plays because he's a step behind them or several steps behind them. So I don't really think that's the long-term place for him, though at the beginning of the year, I advocated for Molson to be next to Eichel in kind of a sheltered offensive line role. I don't really think he's there. He's slowed down more than I expected. He's supposed to be a goal scorer. He's paid to be a goal scorer, and he doesn't score. He doesn't score at all, no matter what line he's been on. He's They've tried him on virtually every every line. He's played with pretty much every player on this roster. So I don't really know what to do with him. I think he's going to have to stay in the lineup, especially if the forwards banged up. But what are you going to do with this contract? Looking forward, you know, you have three more years left, the $5 million cap hit per year, and the year that you need the most cap space is probably going to be 2018-2019 when Eichel's and Reinhardt's deals are are ending. So their entry-level contracts are ending. That's when Kane will be a free agent. That'll be a big offseason right there, obviously. Uh, but... Any Molson buyout, you only save about $1.2 million against the cap that year. So I, probably the most likely thing that happens is he, they keep him these next two years. They'll be able to handle it unless they make some huge free agent signings. Um, yes, they're going to have to pay Ristolainen. They're going to have to pay Gurgensons. But they're going to have other some other dead weight coming off the team. They're probably going to have another high draft pick still on uh, their entry-level contract, assume, depending on what draft pick they get this year. But probably what makes the most sense for them to hold out to that point and then hope that maybe he retires by then, though I know I wouldn't be passing up that type of paycheck, or that they can maybe trade him that offseason to a team that's trying to hit the cap floor, maybe with expansion teams in the league. Somebody may be interested in that contract at that point. But... That's that's pretty sad that, that it looks like now they're going to have dead weight on the roster, taking up $5 million in cap space over the next two years. I don't think it's going to kill them. The year it could kill them if they really want to make a run in that 2017-2018 season. But they are still going to have definitely Eichel and Reinhardt still on their entry-level deals, and they'll have their draft pick from this year still on his entry-level deal. So they'll probably still have a lot of flexibility to spend money that year, even with Molson's contract, but it's just not a good place to be in. And that contract was too long-term for Murray to commit to when you're trying to, if you're trying to bring somebody in, that's going to be part of this changing of the guard and to create a good culture, a five-year contract is excessive. I hated the Gianta contract as well, but it was at least only three years, which you could see the rebuild taking about three years. You knew last year was going to be, tearing it down completely or it's torn down and then maybe the second year is starting to build it back up again the, the third year of, of his contract is becoming maybe a playoff team becoming somewhat of a contender possibly but with Molson a five-year commitment to a guy like that 
and goal scorers like that just do not age well. So I don't want to talk about that too much, but that was just a big mistake. And obviously hindsight is 2020, but if you look historically at contracts that poor skaters have signed, and when I'm saying historically, I mean in recent history, and you can point at players like Jonathan Chichu, who he had the benefit of playing next to Joe Thornton, and he signed a big contract and, you know, ended up, he, like, I he was a below average, he was an average player in the AHL only several years later after that type of performance, and it was because he wasn't a good skater. And when you're an average or below average skater, it doesn't take much to put you into that that realm where you don't belong in the league anymore. Danny Heatley, look at his drop-off from where he was from a great goal scorer, and within within a few years, he's down playing in the AHL. And Molson is in that kind of category. He, put, he had some great seasons playing next to John Tavares. I, I like the guy, and I would love to see him succeed, but he never was even an average skater. And those guys just age very quickly because it doesn't take much anymore with how fast the game is and how everybody can skate. Everybody can skate very well. It's not like maybe it used to be in the 80s or you know, 25 plus years ago where you know you could get away with not being a good skater. Where maybe a, a Jason Allison type, he's a guy that comes to mind as somebody that was able to survive for a while despite being a, a bad skater. I know that wasn't 25 years ago. That was when I was a when I was a kid, but. Those times are not here anymore, just with, with how good everybody is and how the playing field's really been leveled. So not looking forward to what happens with Molson, and it'll be an interesting thing to, to follow. Uh, but I'm not I'm not pleased about it. Robin Leonard was a big story. He did a nice game on Tuesday. He I I'm still never gonna like the trade. And I still think it was a poor move. I think you can point to what I just talked about for a while, the Molson contract and this Leonard trade probably is Murray's two most questionable decisions to this point. But I'm cautiously optimistic about Leonard. So, yeah, it wasn't a perfect game by any means against Ottawa, but he was able to escape able to escape with the win despite Sabres getting outplayed like crazy in the third period. And it was bad. And he got scored on right after... The, the clock hit zero. So it was very close to being a tie game and entering overtime. But he was able to come out with the win. I thought he played well. Like I've said, I don't want to repeat myself too much from what I've said on previous podcasts, but he he's extremely talented. And he, he's still pretty young by goalie standards. Goaltenders tend to follow a different age age development than skaters do. And for you know forwards also tend to follow a different age age uh, development than defensemen do, but goaltenders tend to mature much later than either other than any other position in hockey, and so he's still quite young by by goalie standards. You know, maybe 24 for a for a forward. You know, you you talk about a Vander Kane who's the same age, and you kind of already say he pretty much is what he is. There's not going to be a ton more growth there. Your your prime tends to be when you're probably 24 to, to 26 maybe you can expand it 23 to 27 that's probably about your prime as a skater and as a forward and defenseman you can probably push that a little bit later it probably is more like 25 maybe 24 to 28 or 25 to 29 but for goalies 
their prime is probably closer to, to 26 to 30 or 27 to 31. So, he still is very young by goalie standards. I think he is still learning a lot and trying to harness all that talent. And I think his biggest thing, like I've said before, is just being under control and not overcompensating. And he doesn't have to doesn't have to try to dive to make these saves and to get himself out of position and have to try to dive back the other way, which is a, a lot of the discussion we have about Linus Olmark. Olmark is significantly younger, which is why what he did was so promising. He's only 22, and already started to show a lot of a lot of progression during his short time in Buffalo. And he's got an extra two years of development. He's an extra two years of development ahead of Leonard. But Leonard's shown some excellent streaks already in both his AHL career and in his NHL career. He's gotten extremely hot over certain stretches of time. So. I am cautiously optimistic about Leonard, and I think each game you see him play, he's emerging more and more as the number one goalie and probably is the best goalie that this team has had over the last couple years. And people may make the argument for, for Michael Neuvert, who is a very good goalie as well, and I wish that they had pursued him in the offseason. But in terms of upside and projection – along with current play. I don't think that you can put anybody above Leonard. Um, so I'll talk about the defense a little bit. I already talked about Jake McCabe. Bogosian, I think, he, he really struggled over these last couple games. And he initially looked quite good next to Ristolainen, and I talked up the possibility of those two being a long-term pairing. But after, maybe it was a honeymoon period, but his defensive positioning just really isn't where it needs to be, or it hasn't been where it needs to be over these last couple games. And he started to look like a liability next to Ristolainen, and that, that's been an issue next to Ristolainen all year. I think he really carried Georges a lot, and I had really hoped that he'd be able to pick up Bogosian's play by playing by playing next to somebody as good as Ristolainen, and Bogosian could really emerge from whatever funks were ailing him. And I just don't see it though. Bogosian, he's another really great athlete, and you can compare him somewhat similar to Evander Kane. And they both were acquired in the same trade, so I'm sure people have made these comparisons too. But he is a, a great athlete. He's a very good skater. He's a big guy, obviously in great shape. Um, he has all the physical attributes you want. He's, he's big, um, but there's just something not there that's keeping him from being a good NHL player or a quality NHL player to being a very good one or a core piece. And I think it's the same thing you see with Kane. Kane does bring a lot of good things, just like Bogosian brings a lot of good things. But Kane also, is he's an incredible skater. He's going to hit people. He has a good shot. He He's a great athlete as well. He's also in very good shape. But just something missing about you know understanding the whole game or playing within a structure just isn't there for him. And I think with Bogosian, it's defensive positioning that's the issue. Both the guys also, they both have injury issues. I, I think they're very comparable. They're about the same age, too. Bogosian's a year older, I believe. 
but you wonder, can he ever really step up to be a top-pairing guy, even playing next to a legitimate number one like Ristolainen looks like he will be, and you can make the very good argument that he already is. But I don't know. I don't know if he's going to take that next step. I have more hope for Bogosian because, like I talked about with Leonard and goalies, that that age range for defensemen is a little bit later than that age, age range for forwards. So defensemen tend to take longer to figure it out. But he's been in the, he's been in this league for a long time. He's been in this league a lot longer than a typical 25-year-old defenseman is or has been in the league. So I don't know if there how much more upside there is beyond this point. At least both of those guys are healthy, which is about all I can ask for. Though Bogosian maybe still has some lingering injury issues that might maybe an excuse for why he isn't playing that great. But it seems like it's more mental with him rather than it being a skating issue or it being that he's that he's favoring something or doesn't look right in those terms. It's just positioning. It's just like, why were you where you were on this goal? Or why were you where you were on this play? Those are the types of things that just baffle me with him sometimes. As a result of Bogosian struggling next to Ristolainen, at least that's what I, how I took it, he was moved down to play with Mark Pesic, and then Mike Weber was moved up to play with, with Ristolainen. And he really looked exposed, too. So Weber, I like him for what he is, and he's a solid third-pairing defenseman. He has been this year. I've really been critical of him in the past, and I'm surprised he's he's the main he, he's the holdout from these previous eras. He's this he's the only guy left. I I don't know who would have guessed that it would be Mike Weber that is still on this team after all these years, after all the other pieces of that core were moved out. This one extra piece, you know, a number six defenseman like Mike Weber has survived. But anyways, I like him for what he is there. And I think that he and Franson have looked like a solid third pairing at a lot of times throughout the season when they've played together. And yes, maybe he can fill in up the lineup here and there, but when he's got to be the partner of the number one defenseman on the team, he just really looks out of place and he tends to get beat much more often when he has to face those types of matchups, has to face other teams' top scoring lines. He he just he takes bad penalties and fans do have they do have a point with Weber about him getting beat and the penalties and those types of things. That does happen a little bit too much. But really I think any third pairing defenseman in this league is going to have some issues like that at times. They're going to have some deficiency. That's why they're a third-pairing defenseman. And I think a team will be willing to pay Mike Weber somewhat decent money this offseason, not anything astronomical. But um, I also think he's going to have some value at the deadline. And whether it's a third-round pick or something like that, maybe a comparable prospect, whatever prospect you want to say is comparable to a third-round pick, some middling player in the AHL possibly that maybe has some sort of future, a long shot on NHL future. I think he will have value because that is what a third pairing defenseman is in today's NHL. They're, they're not going to be rock solid in every facet of the game. And with Weber, his main weakness is, well, first he doesn't bring any offense to the table, but he also takes a few too many penalties and he has a bad tendency to get beat to the outside. 
Uh, but if you look at third pairing defensemen that teams have brought in to be like a number six or maybe even a number seven, if they're really trying to bolster up their defensive depth, they're going to have issues like that. Or, you know, they may only bring an offensive side to their game. So they may not really be physical or they may not be that good in the, in the defensive zone. They may be there just to try to help the second power play unit. You know, those are the types of guys that, that you need to compare Weber to. So I think it's a little bit unfair to expect him to be rock solid. And I think he does bring physical side and, you know, his teammates seem to like him. It's, you know, the, the, the typical things that, that you've heard said about Weber, there is value to that. And I think that contenders would have value, would place some value on that. But I don't see him being here in the long term, and I'm fine with that. I I think that when the time comes, you can find another Mike Weber pretty easily on the free agent market or on the trade market. Think about what we're talking about right now. We're talking about trading him for a third-round pick or a, or a somewhat middling AHLer. So those guys, these types of guys are out there. I think now you get the asset that you can for him. Maybe if he wants to come back as the number six or number seven next year, probably more likely the number seven on a reasonable deal, I would be fine with that. But get an asset for him now if you can. And that's how I feel about all the all the free agents I talked about. If you didn't hear it, similar thing with, with Jamie McGinn, but that they need to get an asset for him. Slightly different reasoning with him, but more with him that, I just don't see a place for him on this team long-term, and I don't want to make the type of commitment that I think they would need to make to him. So it's a different argument from Weber, but they all eventually lead to the same place, which is get the asset that you can for those guys, and you can try to make them a reasonable offer in the offseason and see if they come back. But if not, they're a replaceable commodity in the in the NHL, in the league. Those are the types of guys you can find once you find the real pieces that you need to, to win a championship. So that's pretty much everything I, I I had taken some notes about and gone over before I before I made this this show. That's pretty much everything I had. And right now looking to go into the All Star break. I didn't really talk much about coming out of the All Star break. I think I kind of have touched on that in, in other episodes, but just hoping that basically the, the, the big guns continue to look good, that they can trade off any ancillary pieces they can for assets. So acquire a few more draft pick ass draft pick assets that hopefully they can use as ammunition to move up, you know, whether it's, move up and get another second round pick with some of these third round picks and later picks that they have, or whether it's making a move up into the late first round with, with, with the other ammunition they have, or whether it's packaging picks together to trade for somebody that from a team that's in cap trouble, um, whatever that may be. I think there's another off season. You need as many assets as you can so that Murray can try to swing some of these deals. Um, and then hopefully just some of these pairings, especially the ones that I discussed today, can, can continue to look good. So Larson and Felino identify the most, Eichel and Gergensens. And I didn't talk about O'Reilly and Reinhardt, but that O'Reilly and Reinhardt can continue to look good. And I, I think the, the lineup looks pretty nice if you have those pairs and you fill in wingers around them. Ennis comes back. 
Hopefully Kane can find his spot on the line. I wonder if he, if him next to Larson and Felino could be very interesting. I, I think I, I would love to see that personally. I think Kane fits well on a, on a third line. I'm just trying to think which line he would fit best. And I don't like him next to Eichel. I've liked him sometimes next to O'Reilly and Reinhardt. So that's a possibility as well. Um, I think maybe Ennis next to Eichel and Gergensen's could make a lot of sense. Or you can put him up on the first line. It just makes that first line small with O'Reilly and Reinhardt and Ennis. Hopefully they can be pretty healthy down the stretch too, is what I'm hoping. And get some semblance of chemistry on the defensive pairings among the guys that are going to be here long term. So find who Bogosian's partner is going to be, basically. Or flip Pesic to the left side, put Bogosian back to the right, and have Pesic and Ristolainen next to each other. So hopefully those types of things can resolve themselves. I think Eichel is going to come out looking great with some even more rest. He came he came out really hot out of the Christmas break. He's really been hot since the Christmas break, and I had the same discussion going into the Christmas break about him and hoping that he was going to that the switch was going to turn on and that having some rest in the middle of his first 82 game NHL season was really really going to to enable him to to explode. And, and enable him to be re-energized and refreshed. So hopefully the same thing happens with him here. It'd be nice to see O'Reilly play in the All-Star game. I don't know how much. I'm not really a big All-Star game guy, but I would. I'll probably tune in at least a bit and see what it's all about. See this new, this whole new format. I I, I know a lot of people are going to be tuning in to see John Scott. I like John Scott, so I'll, I probably will be as well for that purpose, just to see how that works and how out of place he, he may look. I'm glad that the NHL allowed him to, allowed him to still play. And the skills competition stuff is, is pretty cool. So I'll hopefully be able to tune into that. And maybe if there's anything notable to talk about, I'll talk about my next podcast. I, I don't really know if there, if there will be, but Hopefully I'll have another one, if not before the the next game, after the next game, and be able to discuss anything new that comes out. If anything big happens before that game, I definitely will do one beforehand. But thank you very much for listening, as always, and I will catch you then. So enjoy your weekend. Thank you.